So I was thinking as the kids leave, um, this is probably a fitting story to tell today. Um, have you ever found yourself sharing a story um, and responding in a way to some situation that you didn't want to respond to? And so I was thinking about this past fall for me. And some of you heard the story. Actually, very few of you heard the story. Um, so my son is a, participates in a thing called the First Tee. It's like a junior golf program. And, and so um, I, I take him regularly. It's kind of the deal we made, my wife and I, that I would walk out the time to take him and pick him up. And, and so I usually just hang out at the golf course because it's about 25 minutes from my house. And so I'll just sit there. I'll either read a book or I'll chip and putt and practice by myself or, or whatever. So um, this past fall, I, I took him and, and Coach Terry's there and I look at her and she looks kind of frazzled and I says like, Terry, are you okay? And she goes, well, they told us we can't use the driving range. Well, if you know anything about the first tee, like the driving range is kind of important. It's where they spend most of their time. And I said, well, really, is, is the one guy who used to be the pro there, is he not inside? And she goes, well, actually, he left. It's a new guy. I said, oh, well, so in my head, I have all these competing thoughts. I thought, well, well, maybe, maybe Terry, because she can come off a little gruff, maybe Terry just wasn't nice enough. Or maybe this guy doesn't understand this program. I thought, well, I'll go in and I'll talk to him. I'll, I said, Terry, I'll go try. And she goes, okay, that'd be great. And so I thought, you know, I, I thought, well, you know, I... I coach an area high school team, so maybe I can talk about that. I, I walked in with all the right intentions, but thought, you know, probably I could just handle it better than Terry could. And, and I walked in, and I just said, hey, um, so I thought, I'll just try the subtle way first. I said, can I, can I buy some range balls? And he said, no, the range is closed. I said, oh, okay, I, I get it. And I said, well, is it closed for those kids out there too, right? That's kind of a bummer if they signed up for this program and they can't use that. It's kind of a big deal. And he said something about, if you don't understand golf, it's okay. But he's like, so... Um, well, the short game's really where it's at. And I was like, yeah, but if they can't hit the ball, then it doesn't matter whether the short game's any good or not. So um, kind of joked about it. And he said, well, you know, it's not going to work out. And I said, well, just this week or they're here for like six more weeks. And he said, oh, no, every week, you know, they, they should have cleared that. I said, well, it's interesting. They've, this has been scheduled for months. He goes, well, that was the last pro. And I said, yeah, but shouldn't you honor what the last guy said, even though you're the new guy in the job? And and, and his response was, well, you know, we're trying to maintain a world-class facility here, so that's just not going to happen. He goes, well, we do a lot for kids here. I said, well, it doesn't sound like it. <laughs> Which didn't go well, you can imagine, right? So he comes around the counter, he goes, hey, you don't need to come in here and square off with me. I said, well, I'll tell you what, I coach an area high school team, and here's what will happen. I'll talk to all the other coaches about what's happening with these kids here today, and that probably won't be a great thing for you. He goes, did you come here to threaten me? And I said, I didn't start that, but that's not a threat. I will. And before I lost more of my temper, I turned around and I walked out. Now, here's the problem for this, right? Um, it took about 15 seconds of me out the door after it felt really good to say a couple things, right? Um, for me to realize that is not who I want to be. At all. So I turned around. I waited about five minutes to make sure I was in the right frame of mind. And I walked back in, and I said, hey, listen, I want to apologize for my attitude. That wasn't appropriate. I said, I don't even know that we've met, so we exchanged names. I said, listen, I am serious about we've got to figure out a way to help those kids, because that's just not fair. I get you inherited something you didn't schedule, but let's figure out a better alternative. We ended up working out a thing where it worked out for the kids. And, and, um, but I left that conversation going, man, that was not the person I wanted to be. I responded in a way that I don't want to be, and you're like, why does that matter? Because here's why I believe it matters. We respond out of who we are. We respond out of who we are, and who we are is shaped by what we do. 
We respond out of who we are and who we are is shaped by what we do. And so that matters to me because who I was responding to, what the way I was responding was not who I wanted to be. So we don't always get this right. But, but what if there's some times we see characters throughout the scriptures that may paint for us a unique picture? Last week, Holly talked about the story of Ruth. And I'm not going to talk about the story of Ruth. And I will not say anything about the fact that every time I'm gone and she preaches, she bashes me. I won't say anything about that. But the person we're talking about today is one who's referenced by a city. There's jewelry that's marked by him. What we find over and over again is this hero is the person named David. And David is the one in the Old Testament who, as a kid, I love David. The more I've got to know David, I'm not so sure I love David, but I love the story of David and Goliath. Every kid does. But here's really the story of David's life. It really begins with an encounter with Samuel. Samuel's the prophet. He's been the leader of Israel, but he's anointed a king named Saul. And Saul is not the kind of king that God desires, although he looks like the king you and I might want. He like looks good. He's big. He's a great warrior. He's all the things you and I would think a king should be, except for the fact his heart is not a heart after God. And so Samuel is tasked. He's go to the family of Jesse. By the way, Jesse is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. or I'm sorry, Naomi and Boaz from last week. So there you go. There's a story for you. Um, but here is what we begin to see, this encounter that Samuel has with the family of Jesse. And we're going to read from 1 Samuel. Here's what we find. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. By the way, as we read this, Samuel's supposed to pick out the new king. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord says, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Now we learn a couple of important things in this story. Um, One, I love the line, the Lord looks at the heart. Not the things you and I might find most appealing. The other thing I love is there's a Hebrew word here when Jesse's asked, is there one more? He said, well, there's still the youngest. And the word he uses is actually the word hakaton, like hakalugi, hakaton is the word. And, and here's what that word actually means. It means runt of the litter. So like Jesse says, well, there's still the runt, like the little baby one is left, you know, the one that no one wants. He's still left in the field. And Samuel says, go get that one. So we find that God chooses in this moment. He does the opposite of the way that made sense in that world. Instead of choosing the oldest, he chooses the youngest. Instead of choosing the biggest and strongest, he chooses the runt of the litter. And this really begins the trajectory of David's life. David next finds himself working in Saul's kingdom. He's a harp player, and so he begins playing the harp for Saul. And not long after that, we see an interesting thing. It's kind of like the ancient DoorDash or Uber Eats. 
um, David goes off to where his brothers are at war, and he's to deliver food from his dad and go check on his brothers. Because David, remember, he's the runt of the litter, so he's not at war. But here's what we find in this text from 1 Samuel chapter 17. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. All right, so I should probably set up a little bit this, this scene is happening here. Um, Goliath is this giant of a man. Right? You can read about his dimensions in the scripture if you want. But he's taunting all of Israel and going, hey, you guys are a joke. In fact, you're such a joke that if you would just pick one person who, who has the guts to come fight me, we don't even have to everybody fight, just you and I. One person, who is it? And so David's asking his brothers, hey, what's going on? And his brothers are, you know, I mean, you can imagine your younger brother going, what, does no one have any guts here? Like, how would you take that? And so that's where we see. So now David finds himself before Saul saying, hey, listen, I'm in. I'm your guy. The Hakatan, the runt of the litter, he's going to be the one. So here's where we pick up this story. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Now the truth is, you and I have all faced our own Goliaths, whether they're actual people or situations or circumstances or something even we battled inside. An obstacle that feels insurmountable, it feels so large that we don't know what to do with it. It is beyond our comprehension, and there's no way anything good can come unless God is the one who is at work. And you think God's not at work in this story. I mean, it's every kid's favorite story. He has a slingshot and five stones. It's my favorite story, right, in the whole Bible, maybe. I mean, as a kid. A slingshot. I always wanted to buy one, but, like, I tried the ones, like, they would have had they're way too hard. You know, the ones that are funny, pull back. That, that's kind of fun. Not good. And your kids should not have them. You will lose an eye, right? That's how that works. But, but David turns to God. And he finds his hope and his comfort from him. 
And you would think that as he used this slingshot, if you read the rest of the story, you probably heard the story, right? Rock hits him between the eyes, probably knocked him out, and then David goes up and takes Goliath's sword and cuts his head off, right? Not really a Sunday school part of the story. We like the first part. We leave that part out. Um, and that's what the Philistines are then scared, and they run away. That's the gist of the story. But what we begin to find is this. David's reliance on God led to this kind of blessings in his life. But what began to happen is his relationship with Saul initially started great, right? You can imagine this. How would you not love some guy who wins a battle for you that you felt like no one else could win? But over time, what started as a great relationship began to sour. And Saul, rather than loving what David was doing in his, in his midst, he began to be envious and jealous Right, He had the wrong heart. And so what we begin to see is there's this kind of phrase that floated around the culture of the day, um, kind of like a meme, if you will, in the ancient world. And it was this, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you and I, but Saul was like the warrior king. Saul was the one who had been going to battle for years. David was this young man. And so can you imagine how kind of, much of a hit that is to your ego. Who is this guy? I'm king. Who's this punk that plays the harp? And so Saul, not once, but twice, attempts to throw a javelin and spear him to the wall. I don't think it's like a love tap, and he's apparently a better shot than many of you were at axe throwing. I've seen some of our guys throw axes. It's not necessarily a pretty sight, Right? Um, I could talk about Michael, one of his players from his university here was here to, from Aquinas volleyball team, and he stuck like way above the target. That was bad throw as well. But then Saul thinks, well, you know what? Here's what I'll do. I will offer up my daughter to marry him, and I'll build an alliance with him. And so he offers up his daughter, and David goes, no, no, no. Like, who am I? I'm just this shepherd boy. How can I be the one that marries the king's daughter? No chance. Well, Turns on that, and a little while later, Saul finds out that he's got a crush on his daughter, Michael. And he says, to, hey, you've got a crush on my daughter, so I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. You can marry this daughter of mine. And David goes, who am I? And he says, I'll tell you what, I've got a deal. If you will do this, if you will get 100 Philistine foreskins, I know, weird dowry. If you'll get 100 Philistine foreskins, that's the price to marry my daughter. He's thinking in his mind, David will die while trying to do this. Perfect. Well, David takes some men and they go and he brings back a hundred foreskins to Saul. And Saul gives him his daughter in marriage. But the reality for us in this is something we can't miss. Saul represents for us what it looks like when our heart is not sought after seeking God, but seeking all kinds of other things. Because remember... We respond out of who we are, and who we are is shaped by what we do. Saul continues to try to kill David, and if it wasn't for the friendship David had with Saul's son, Jonathan, he too would have been killed. And so the rest of David's life for this season of time is marked by running and hiding, but yet people still followed him in the midst of this. So there's a, there's a scene that kind of happens in the scriptures where where David is hiding in this cave, and Saul is pursuing David, trying to find him. And Saul needs some privacy because he's got to go number two. 
Um, that's what it says in there. He's got to go number two. And so he goes in this cave, and David happens to be hiding in that cave. And David's men say to David, David, God has given you into your hands. Like, he has put him here for you to kill. You can take him out now. But David says, who am I that I will kill the Lord's anointed king? Not me. But he creeps up to him, and he cuts off a corner of his robe. Can you imagine? Saul finishes the business, goes back outside, and David confronts him. And he says, don't you get it? I am not your enemy. See this? Look at your robe. You think I couldn't have killed you? Do you not understand who I am? I am serving you. David is showing again and again what his character is. And so what we begin to find is this, that David knows his character is determined by his actions. In fact, he says these words to Saul. He says this, as the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. See, David knows who he is trying to become and who he wants to be, and he wants his life to reflect that. In fact, there's another scene in which David finds Saul, goes to him, steals his javelin and his water jug, just to say, hey, listen, do you not get it? I don't want to kill you. I'm not your enemy. But Saul is so fixated on his agenda that this is the way it has to be, that I have to take out David, that he cannot see clearly. How many of us, how many of us have been so fixated on something in life? We've so bought into some idea, blinded by our own agenda, our own purposes, our own things to miss. Maybe someone in front of us is not who we thought they were. Or some course of action that we keep taking is not the direction that maybe would be best for us. We might miss the reality of who people actually are. And so not long after this, the Philistines are at the war with the Israelites, and Saul and his son Jonathan are killed. And can you imagine, your enemy has been killed, and David responds in a way that shows the true depth of his character. He grieves for their loss. He doesn't celebrate their death. pretty incredible story. But David's life is not done. You see, in, in chapter 5 of 2 Samuel, he becomes king, and he conquers Jerusalem, and it becomes the city known as the city of David. In chapter 6, he brings the Ark of the Covenant to the city, and he begins to watch God bless it, and he celebrates, and he worshiped. And I, I always have this picture of, like, um, you know, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I don't know if you go there, but I always go there, and if you're, like, under 30, you don't even know what I'm talking about. But... If you're over 30, it's a good movie. You can watch it sometime. But what we begin to find is David then worships God with this kind of reckless abandon. He doesn't care what anyone else thinks. In fact, he so doesn't care that his own wife is appalled at what she sees. In fact, here's what we see um, from chapter 6, these words. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today going around half-naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes but by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. 
often have we been more concerned about the perception of someone else than whether we live lives of worship towards God. In chapter 7, we see this conversation between David and God, and God promised him there will always be someone on your throne to serve, and this kingdom will last forever. In chapter 8, we hear about all David's victories and the expanding kingdom. In chapter 9, we see this really cool moment where he says, is there anyone left from Saul's family? And there's one person, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. And he's lame, can't walk. And David goes to him and says, listen, your family, I'm giving you back all your family's lands, and you will sit at my table to eat. So he goes to the son of his enemy, who he never saw as an enemy. And he says, you are always welcome at my table. In fact, here you go. May God bless you, and may you multiply. We see his character again and again, right? Remember, though, we respond out of who we are, and who we are is shaped by what we do. And I would love to say David's life kind of ended right there, but what we see next is the epitome of what happens if we're not careful to what we continue to do. In chapter 11, we see this scene kind of unfold, the story you probably also have heard. The story of David and Bathsheba, and David should have been at war. It's as if he is saying, I have put in my time. I have done my job. I am now retired. And so he's restless. He goes to the roof when he should have been at war. And he looks out, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing, and she's doing nothing wrong. He's the one who's doing something wrong. He calls to her and he says, hey, I want you to come to the palace to be with me. Now, she doesn't have a choice, by the way. The king has summoned you. What do you do? And she goes. David sleeps with her. And she gets pregnant. David goes, oh, no. So David, to try to make the thing right... He has her husband, Uriah, who's a good man. There's nothing but goodness we can say about Uriah. Uriah comes back from battle, and David sends him home and says, you've just been such a great soldier. Why don't you go home and be with your wife? But because Uriah is such a man of honor and cares so much about those he's been fighting with, he won't even go inside because how can I do that when my fellow brothers are at war? I will not do it. And David tries again, and he doesn't do it a second time. He won't do it. He just will not do it because of who he is. So David sends him back to war and sends this message to his generals. Hey, put Uriah where the fighting is fiercest. And when the fighting starts, I want you to pull everybody back so that Uriah is struck down. And he is. David has him killed. Then he invites Bathsheba to the palace. And she becomes one of his wives. Right? Remember these words? We respond out of who we are. Who we are is shaped by what we do. And then we see this scene between the prophet Nathan and David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Then he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and grew up with him and his children. He shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle 
to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now here's where, again, we go. The character of David becomes something to look to. He doesn't try to defend his actions. He doesn't doesn't even begin to do that. He knows he's wrong. And he knows he not only sinned against Uriah because he's dead, but he sinned against God. And then if you were to read Psalm 51, I'm not going to read it this morning, but if you were to read it, it is David's confession and his longing for God to forgive him. He owns what he did wrong because he knows what he did is part of who he is. And he offers up this repentance and this prayer and this desire to be changed and transformed. But what we begin to see in David's life is a transition happening. What he begins to seek, what he begins to long for, it becomes the wrong thing. And it leads to all kinds of destruction for his family. Because David's family doesn't always respond in the way that David did. David's family doesn't always say, hey, we're sorry. We, we want to live the right way. In fact, what we begin to see is that his family begins to just unravel. He had a son named Amnon, and Amnon had a crush on his sister Tamar. They probably would have been half-sisters, but still, they were siblings. And he had a crush on his sister, and he just wanted her so bad. And a servant works with him and concocts a plan so that he can, he can sleep with his sister. And he rapes her. It's an awful story. As much as he longed for before, he now hates her and he kicks her out. And she says, don't you understand? You could have just gone to our father and he would have offered me up to marry you. It's a different culture, right? Just let's understand that. Like you and I could have even been married. It didn't have to be this way. And he, she begged and she begged, but he didn't care because he wanted what he wanted and he was going to do what he wanted to do. And then Amnon's brother Absalom hears about this, who's also Tamar's brother. Long story short, Absalom has Amnon killed. He takes care of him. But that's not where the story ends. 
long after Absalom declares himself king, David's son, right? I'm summarizing a lot here, right? But, But he declares himself king. And David flees. He runs, right? This is David, right? The one who, with a slingshot, killed lions and bears. This is David, the one who killed Goliath the giant. This is David, the one who's a great warrior and leader. This is the David who's running from his own son. The own son who then sleeps with all David's concubines. Now, um, David, man after God's own heart, running away, scared. Now, it's kind of a twist of irony, right? Absalom was known for his, like, long, beautiful hair. Uh, He gets caught in a tree, and Joab the general has him killed. So that's the long story short. David is restored. He, but David, David does some things that really don't sit well with the people. David grieves so much so for his son, right? David should have punished his sons. He didn't. He kind of let them go. It's like, oh, I just love them so much. And he doesn't really punish them. And so what happens then is the generals come to him and go, hey, listen, we just fought for you. The soldiers fought for you. And now you're here throwing this like tantrum of pity party for yourself for the loss of your son. They just bled for you, and you're doing this. Knock it off. The problem for David is the problem for many of us. David idolized his family. If you and I are not careful, our families become our idol. They become the thing that we worship. We create so many opportunities for our kids or our grandkids at the detriment of actually following Jesus. And I'd love to say David kind of figured out and got it right, but one of the next scenes we see towards the end of David's life, he decides, you know, I want to know how great I am. He says to Joab, his general, hey, will you count the number of men in my army? And Joab goes, I don't think you need to do that. Like, it's pretty big. That's all you need to know. It's a big army. David goes, no, no, no. Basically, I want to know how great I am. I want to know how many people I am in charge of. And so rather than trusting God, David wants to know how great he is and how big his army is. And God says to him, don't you get it? I'm the reason you have anything. And then we see these words. David was conscious stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. Now, the series is flawed heroes, and here's the reality. David is a flawed hero, but David is like you and I. Sometimes he gets it right, and sometimes he gets it wrong. Uh, I saw a meme this week on David online, and so I'm going to read it, Um, but it's basically, I I don't know a better way to summarize it than this. this is, the, the Psalms, one thing that I love about the Psalms is David wrote many of them. And the Psalms are not necessarily the character of God. They are just the reflection of the prayer life of someone. So, right? so that's important to understand. When you read the Psalms, you go, wait, that's what God wants? No, no, no. Often it's not what God wants. It's just people being honest about what they desire, right? So this was the meme on David. Your love for me, O God, is everlasting. Please castrate my enemies and throw their families in a pit. Praise you for your loving kindness, O oh God. Right, go read the Psalms. They're a mess. They're like the overflow of our heart. And our heart sometimes is going the wrong direction. And that's what we see all throughout the Psalms. But what they are is they're brutally honest about what we desire. 
And sometimes David got it right, and sometimes David got it wrong. We respond out of who we are. Who we are is shaped by what we do. What we do is seen in what we seek. What we do is seen in what we seek. David was flawed, and so are you and I. But there's good news for us today that what we have sought in the past does not have to be what we seek in the present. Right? When David was seeking the right things and living for God, you notice that his life just seemed to be blessed in all the ways that you can never tangibly understand. And yet every time he began to seek after all the wrong things in life, he began to see his life fall apart before him. No matter how much money or power or prestige, it was still a mess. In fact, there's someone from the line of David from his family's genealogy into the future, the person of Jesus, who shares these words in Matthew 6, 25 to 34, this whole section about don't worry, right? I'm not going to talk about that today, but I do want to talk about the very last line of that, which is this. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. In other words, what do you and I seek the most in life? What is most important to you and I? What do we seek first? Are we like David when he lived in the right ways, or are we like David when he idolized his family and it led to more and more destruction? If I were to ask those closest to you, those who know you the most, those who love you the most, what do you seek first? What would they say? What would they say about you and I if we were asked that question? And if we were to ask those same people, what are they seeking right now? Not just what have they sought in the past, but what are they seeking right now? Right, here's the good news for us in this series. Right, The whole point is this, that, that, that all throughout the Bible we see people are messed up. The good news is we get honest looks at real people who live lives that were pretty broken. But the good news of the story of the scriptures is not that, hey, you live a broken life, good for you, you're good to go. That's not the point of the stories. The point of the stories is, listen, we keep pointing forward that someday someone may make things so right in such a way that we no longer have to be defined by our flawed and broken stories, that we can begin to see that we can live into unique ways. This morning we're going to take communion and we do this thing every month here and it's a way in which you can come forward and, and so we think there's a unique thing about the kingdom of God. The unique thing is this, that it's a family, a community of faith. And there's a table that we believe is not just like it's present in this moment, but it's present for all eternity that you are invited into to come to this table and say, hey, I want to be a part of God's unique people. I want to know him. I want to seek him first. I want to seek him more than anything else in this life. And so I'm going to come to this table and I'm going to accept that God's grace and God's forgiveness and God's mercy are for me. And not only are they for me, but, but I don't have to be defined by what I've sought before. I can recognize that I can seek him first. And so when we come to this table, it is an invitation to the grace of God. To recognize. David's story is probably too uncomfortable for us to recognize how often we have fit into that story. That if a man after God's own heart can have someone killed and sleep with someone else's wife, right? there's no place that we probably can't go. But at the end of the day, we begin to find that it's true. Is that we respond out of who we are. 
who we are is shaped by what we do. What we do is seen in what we seek. What are you and I seeking today? We pray with me this morning. As I pray, there's some going to come and help with communion this morning. And we practice open table communion, which means if you just say Jesus is Lord, you are invited to come and participate. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together today for the way you love us and for the way you draw us near. We thank you for your mercy that comes to us where we are, as we are, but you don't leave us there. That just like the story of David, we don't have to continue to live in the broken patterns that have defined us. That we'd find that in spite of what we have done in the past, that we can seek you first and respond in ways that reflect who you are in this world. And like we see with, like we see with David, that we can seek you first. That just like in Psalm 51, this confession, this repentance, that we can lay these things down before you and you will redeem and restore us and we can become who you have invited us to be. And so, Father, we ask that we might come to your table this morning and recognize your love and your grace and your mercy for us. We pray all this in your son Jesus' name.